First lesson is from the fifth chapter of Matthew. Jesus is speaking. Listen for the word of God. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Second reading for this morning comes from the 22nd chapter of Matthew. With a nice setup. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth, and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord God, as we gather today, I pray that you will use the words that I have prepared and the words that I say, that they may help us know you better and inspire us to serve you in the world that you have created. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're in the midst, as you know, of a sermon series at Westminster in which we are exploring ways that Christians throughout history have related to the culture in which they have lived. The past two Sundays, we have explored models that are polar opposites. We looked at Christ against culture, in which the demands of following Jesus Christ are seen to be so intense and the world so evil that the only true way to be faithful to Christ is to withdraw from the world into monastic or communal life or to stand in prolonged and radical opposition to some, if not most, aspects of the world. In the model that we saw last week, the opposite of that was Christ of culture. Jesus in this model is seen as the exemplification of all that is best and most aspirational in human culture, often the culture of the one who is doing the seeing. 
Thus, Jesus Christ can be seen as the Renaissance man, the great humanist, the great warrior, the embodiment of reason, the great achiever, the accruer and sharer of wealth. The remaining models before us, and there are three of them, are not as black and white. You can tell that from their titles. Christ above culture, today's model. Christ in culture in paradox, next week. And Christ the transformer of culture. H. Richard Niebuhr, a 20th century theologian who devised these models, the younger brother of the better-known Reinhold Niebuhr, called these last three models that we will be looking at synthetic because they seek to combine or synthesize both the value of faith in Christ and the value of living in the world. I think it's fair to say that most of us in this sanctuary will likely find our home in, more, in one of these three models more than in the past two that we have considered. There are three theological principles that unite these combined models. And I want to share them with you first. First, when we call ourselves Christians, we are not seeking to follow a Jesus who is separated from our Creator. Nor are we seeking to worship our Creator who is separated from Jesus the Christ. Rather, we are seeking to obey God in Christ and Christ in God. The one who is creator, redeemer, and sustainer, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, while this may sound like familiar language from the Apostles' Creed that we say every Sunday, which in fact it is, I believe in God the Father Almighty, I believe in Jesus Christ His Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. These words, the words that lie behind this recitation, are significant. What they tell us is that God's activity of creation originates from above. In heaven. But his activity of redeeming and sustaining us occurs here below on earth. Thus, when we give our lives to this God in Christ and this Christ in God, our subsequent service can only occur in the here and now, in the concrete, actual life of nature. And culture. Our desire to obey God originates and is given to us from above, but it is exercised below in this life. Our faith comes from heaven, but it lives and breathes in the culture in which we live on earth. A second belief common to these three models is an acknowledgement of the reality of sin and evil. In these combined models, unlike in the first two, the power of sin and evil is believed to be universal and pervasive. It casts its shadow not simply on the world, as in the Christ against culture model, but it casts its shadow also on the church, on people of faith as well as people of unbelief. 
on culture and on nature. No thing and no one is exempted from the power of sin and evil. This means that the gap between God and humanity is far too great for us to be able to reach a life of faith on our own. Sin and evil are too powerful for us to overcome even with our best intentions and even with our most focused discipline. The life we find with God simply has to come from God, from above. This leads to the third belief that these models share, namely an affirmation of both grace and Law. We often think that these two important elements of our faith, grace and law, are opposed to one another. In Christianity, especially in Protestantism, we are used to saying that we are freed from the law by God's grace. That we are saved by God's grace, not by works of the law. Yet in the sense that Niebuhr and indeed the Old Testament use the word law... Law represents the shape and form of God's will for our lives. It, is, it represents the best of what the world can be. Grace comes from above, but law is what we live in and through in our culture. Thus, Christ above culture, Christ in culture in paradox, and Christ the transformer of culture all combine, albeit imperfectly, faith in God from above and life in culture below. The particular model that we have before us today is called Christ above culture. While the title of this model may conjure up images of Christ Floating above the world in angelic attire, with no involvement with what goes on below. That is not what Niebuhr intends by this model. He points to two places where this model is embedded, though not explicated, in the scriptures. The first is from the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus, modeling himself after Moses, who receives the Ten Commandments on the mountain, offers both an affirmation and an extension of the Jewish law in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, he says. Do not think that I have come to abolish all the structures you have in place that have defined and given shape to your faithfulness to God. I have come not to abolish the law, but in fact to fulfill it, to extend it, to perfect it. Later, when Jesus is challenged by religious leaders concerning the appropriateness of paying taxes to the dreaded and oppressive Roman government, Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and to God the things that belong to God. Christians ever since have wrestled in our conscience, consciences and in our various churches, what in our situation we are called to render to God and what in our situation we are called to render to Caesar. 
These sayings reveal that followers of Jesus Christ are to be active in the world, exceeding the divine intention that centuries earlier was communicated behind the law and rendering appropriate citizenship to and working through established governments. Empowered by faith as a gift from above, Christians are to live with these divinely given gifts of faith from above, of law, and of government as we exercise our calling in the world. So if our faith we share, so if in our faith we share these general outlines of Christ above culture, if we believe that our faith does in fact come from above and is to be lived out here below, what might this particular model of Christ above culture say to us in our day and time? I'd like to answer this or begin to answer it with a personal reflection. When I was in my years of college seriously considering the ministry, I turned to several ministers with, for conversations and with many questions over a two to three year period. I remember one older minister looked at me from the leather chair in his dark paneled office. Tell me, he said, in one word, what your faith provides you. Now in subsequent years, as I have looked back on this minister's question, I realized that there are many ways that I or anyone else might have answered that question. I might have said, my faith provides me with forgiveness, with hope, with peace, with joy, with comfort, with strength, with courage, with patience, with happiness. Any one of these answers could be true for me or for anyone that was asked that question. But what came to my mind within a few seconds was the word perspective. Perspective, I answered. My faith gives me perspective. Now, I think when I answered perspective, I had in mind a kind of distance, a view from above, a big picture view of all the losses that I had experienced in the few short years of, of my college time, the time in which I was considering the ministry, the death of a father, the sale of a family home, the move of grandparents across the country and their subsequent deaths, my brother's struggles with what so many people in the 1970s struggled with, and the impact that his struggles had on my barely 40-ish, on the barely 40-ish widow who was my mother. I think the perspective that came to my lips that day 
was that of a desire to have a larger view of where all these family losses would fit in. But in writing this sermon, the memory of that question and answer came back to me. And I think this word perspective can also help guide us concerning how we live today with Christian faith in the world, the culture around us. Our time, as you know, is a decidedly mixed time for Christianity in our own culture, to be sure, and to say nothing of other cultures, in some of which Christianity is experiencing rapid and exploding growth, and in others of which Christians are facing danger, deportation, and death by horrific means. Though in America we face nothing like this. In our society, as you know, the portion of the population that is Christian is declining. The established accoutrements of our society are no longer exclusively or primarily Judeo-Christian, but embrace the many nations and religions from which we in this country come. To use Chesterton's term, we are no longer a nation with the soul of a church. Yet Niebuhr points to two Christians from the Christ above culture model who centuries ago offered different but complementary perspectives that I think can help us as we seek to live in this culture. The first is Clement of Alexandria, who lived in the second century. That is, what, the 100s, correct? It's a long time ago. Niebuhr holds Clement up for, quote, the moderation of morals with which he sought to live. According to Clement, a Christian must first of all be a good person in accordance with the standard of a good culture. Sobriety in personal conduct, honesty in economic dealings, obedience to political authority. Sounds like a bunch of boring Presbyterians, right? But this is by no means the whole of the Christian life, said Clement. There is a stage of existence, I love this, beyond the morally respectable life of the churchgoer. A perfection that is even greater than that of the wise. Clement said Christ invites us to a life of God for God's own sake, without desire of reward, without fear of punishment, a life of spontaneous goodness in which neighbors and enemies are served 
in response to divine law, to divine love. A life of freedom. A life sometimes beyond the law. It is the perspective from above that leads Clement to both the moderation of morals and the stage beyond the morally respectable life of the churchgoer. It is the faith from above that gives life to his faith. Niebuhr also turns to the great medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas, who lived more than a thousand years after Clement. I'll bet you didn't know you'd come to a Presbyterian church to hear a sermon on Aquinas. But Aquinas solves the problem of faith and culture with a both and. He was first and foremost a monk living in poverty and celibacy, rejecting the secular world. Yet he was a monk in a church that had become a shaper and former and guardian of culture, the fosterer of learning, the judge of nations, the protector of the family, the governor of social religion. Aquinas' vast intellectual contributions reveal a similar combination of Christ and culture. As in his writing, which is voluminous, he combines philosophy and theology, state and church, civic and Christian virtues, natural and divine laws. Niebuhr says Aquinas built a great structure of theoretical and practical wisdom. And he said it was like a cathedral that was solidly planted among the streets and marketplaces the houses, the palaces, and the universities that all represent human culture, but which, when one passed through its doors, presented a strange new world of quiet spaciousness, of sounds and colors and actions and figures that are symbolic of life beyond secular culture that point us to life above. While both Clement and Aquinas display a Christ above culture life, Clement's attempt was made at a time when Christianity was more or less outlawed. While Aquinas represents a time in which Christianity shaped and formed the institutions of Western civilization. Yet both of these embody the model in which Christ comes from above but lives through us here below in culture. The issues before our own culture have not changed all that much since the beginnings of our civilization. Race, immigration, how we treat the land, what it means to say that all people are created equal, what life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness mean case by case, 
person by person, era by era. And the tension between foreign entanglements and making the world safe for democracy. As we seek to live in culture with our faith from God that comes from above, at times our best and only tact is to be like the Christians in Clement's day. Sobriety in personal conduct, honesty in economic dealings, obedience to political and other authorities. Yet I believe that even as our influence has waned in our culture, we still, like Aquinas, have something to say to the larger culture, have a role to play, a responsibility to assume or share. We can still be concerned about more than our own families. And we can still work for, if not the Christianization of society, which was Aquinas' task, at least its humanization, its common good. We can join our voices with those of other faiths and with those of secular movements, working, and in our case, praying for the welfare of the city, the cities in which we live. In Paul's words, for the things that make for peace. But in order to do this, we need that word, perspective. The perspective that God in Christ comes from above, yet redeems and sustains us here below. That we might serve God in our culture, in our world, sometimes in ways that are big, sometimes in ways that are small. Amen.